0: I was looking at different solutions out there. I thought there was a there was definitely space for a new one. So I decided to quit my job and essentially build what has now become Address Cloud. So the idea was to really have a, a kind of Google like experience. So like really simple to use, nice interface, really easy to be able to integrate with, fully cloud hosted, fully managed and in the cloud. And that's where Address Cloud was born.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Mark Varley and he is the CEO and founder of a company called Address Cloud, Address Cloud is helping insurance companies deal with risk management. And Mark's going to be telling us a little bit about how he got involved with geospatial. We're going to be talking about the role of geocoding in terms of risk management. And we're also going to be looking at the ever-changing role of GIS in the insurance industry. Just before we dive into the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Hive Mapper. That's Hive as in Beehive Mapper. And this is the platform that lets you upload aerial video footage to the cloud and have it automatically converted into 3D geospatial layers. So there's no need to do any work to this data. It doesn't have to have any location data attached to it. No location metadata is necessary. Just upload it to the cloud and they will convert it to usable geospatial layers for you. It's an amazing platform and I highly recommend it. Okay, on with the interview. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased you could take the time to come along and do this interview with me today. I'm I'm really looking forward to the conversation. In the pre-interview, we talked a lot about risk assessment. I know that you're involved with insurance, and I think, and obviously you have a company called AddressCloud, and we're slowly but surely going to put that whole story together for the listeners. But right at the start, perhaps you could just give us a, a brief background of your history. How did you get involved in geospatial? What does geospatial have to do with insurance?
0: Yeah, sure, Daniel. Thanks ever so much for the opportunity to come on and speak. Um, big fan of the podcast, listen to lots of episodes, and it's really, really refreshing. So really appreciate the invitation. Um, so yeah, I'm Mark. My background, uh, I'm another one of these accidental geographers. I think you've had a few on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, my, my background, I, I essentially came, um, I, I graduated in 2000. Um, I started my career, as probably a lot of people do, on one of these grad schemes. So I went and joined Accenture. I think no reason other than they were paying the most at the time, so uh, that's that's I guess what attracted me into the consulting industry. Didn't really know where I was going to end up, and uh, got placed in the financial services practice. I did a brief stint with the London Stock Exchange, and then I found myself working in insurance. This would have been around two thousand and three, uh, and again no geo particularly. I was working um, in, a, in a kind of the general consulting practice, but. Bizarrely, um, which I didn't really realize at the time, uh, insurance has got a huge uh, location element to it. Um, and at the time, uh, we were engaged in a big project to, to basically take GIS, which had been a background function for, for many years. So a very kind of specialist part of the insurance business. Uh, I was involved in a project to really bring that front and center of the client's operations. So what they were looking to really do was take, take location and, and looking up addresses and uh, basically apply some GIS and have that happen as part of the quote and buy journey. So when a when a customer was getting their insurance, really, really kind of focusing in on that address level uh, and being able to to give a really good, accurate view of risk and price. So that was that was my introduction into into GIS, and yeah, I've been learning ever since.
1: Could you give us a little bit more background on that introduction to GIS? So um, there was obviously an understanding in the industry that location was really important in terms of insurance, in terms of assessing risk, essentially, I suppose. So, so how detailed were you getting with that location? Was it, was it a street level address? Was it in a postcode? Was it in a city limits kind of thing? And I guess, too, if you could put some more words around what kind of data you were using to, to make those uh, assessments, that'd be really interesting for the listeners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, historically, the insurers have been using geo, and they've been some of the quite early adopters of geo, probably going back to the, you know, certainly to the '80s and potentially even even before that. But actually, a lot of uh, a lot of the work that was happening was kind of desktop based. It was, and it tended to be the very large uh, commercial, commercial risks where there'd be one or two really smart people who'd know about GIS, who probably had a couple of ArcGIS or whatever the precursor was. Uh, uh, licenses, and, and they would go and look up risks that looked kind of big or scary, and they'd be typically looking. I mean, the big risks in the UK tend to be flood, uh, flood risk, and uh, fire risk, and arson risk. There used to be obviously we used to get a lot of home fi- uh, fires, and and historically most of the uh, this kind of process was 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 happening what we'd call post event or post binding. So often the the insurer was already on cover. And anything that was happening at the point of quotation was really at at the postal code level. You know, in the UK, we're blessed with quite a detailed postcode system. So we can get you down to perhaps, you know, a city block, maybe somewhere between 50 and 100 properties. Uh, And what we were doing as part of this work was really saying, well, let's take it down to the next level. Let's get it to to building and to actually to address level. uh, And what can we give about, you know, to the address? So an example there, classic example there, is where you've got a street uh, that's on a hill uh, and at the bottom of the hill, you've got a river. And if you've got somebody who's living at the bottom of the hill and they're close to the river, they could be a worse flood risk than potentially even their neighbor who may be only two, three doors away. Uh, and so that's a very, very different risk profile. So so what we were doing is was really trying to use geography and trying to use geotechniques as part of the quote process. And we'd kind of almost call it geo with no maps because... Although maps and geo were, were really important as part of this uh, this particular process, the client would never see a map, but maps were being used in the background to to inform the uh, the price and eligibility.
1: Okay, so, so that sounds like a, a really big leap there, just that understanding that within postcodes we can have these different hazards, these different risks, and, and then we can assess each house individually. So it sounds like you're becoming a lot more granular now in, in your yeah. approach to it. Can you give us an idea of... Of what other kind of data sources you might use? So, yeah, I, I can definitely see that with the example of the height, you know, elevation and being close to a river. What other kind of risk factors might you take into consideration when, when you're doing this kind of uh, risk assessment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, at the time, so the company I was working for, we were we would buy in a lot. Uh, we had an in-house team who were modeling things like crime, so taking um, police statistics and and um, so Office of National Statistics and census data. So they're modeling out crime. The flood risk, we are actually bringing that in from a th- from a third party company, and that was taking in elevation data, so DEM uh, elevation data, and they actually simulating well. So the company we worked with was a company called JBA, who are the, the market leader in the UK for um, for flood risk, uh, and they actually have products that that kind of go all around the globe, and they're busy, you know, trying to do world domination at the moment. But yeah, they've got a really some really clever software that basically models terrain and then simulates uh, water flow and Understanding where that will build up and, and where rivers potentially uh, would burst, as well as surface water and kind of coastal overtopping. But it does very much uh, kind of uh, flood and flood uh, and and crime. Uh, but there's definitely some sort of uh, fire risks in there as well. So things like taking building outline information, dissolving building outlines, working out where fire could spread, and simulating those kind of events as well.
1: I guess too, it's worth noting that this is probably not a, a one-time calculation either. like I'm assuming flood risk will change depending on how the urban environment develops, and also in terms of fire, how is the how is the landscape changing, how are the buildings changing what what is the the socioeconomic factors within a certain postcode perhaps like so I'm assuming these things need to be recalculated. the model needs to be rerun from time to time. Can you give us an idea of the frequency of that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the floods, as I say, the, the flood work is done by, we don't we do not do that ourselves, we work with a third party company who do that. But they have, I think they've probably got 100 people who are working on that on a daily basis doing edits. Um, so taking into account, for example, where, you know, new roads have been laid, where the, where the environment's changing, when new houses have been built up. So the data is normally refreshed annually. So flood data is refreshed annually. Um, but they're doing up, updates and edits on that data daily, essentially. So it's it's always, it's, it's an ever changing, complex uh, complex beast.
1: I, I think this. Now that we've talked about geospatial and risk assessment and the insurance industry, I think that we, we sort of understand why it's important and how it's used. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, Address Cloud, your company, is is doing and and how you are improving the situation or what problems you are solving?
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely. So um I started the company five years ago. Um so it was it was just me initially, um, and it was me for the first couple of years. Uh we've now grown. We're still a pretty small company. There's about there's five of us now. But really we set about uh trying to help specifically around geocoding. So the problem we had at the time was that the company I was working for, we'd invested a huge amount of money in in these third party data sets. We were taking data from the Ordnance survey. Um so in the UK I'm We're kind of we're blessed with really good uh, postal code and addressing system, but we're kind of slightly held back by the fact that a lot of the data is is closed source commercial data. So to be able to get to rooftop level with geocoding requires quite a quite large investment in data through through government, essentially government public data. But then it also requires a uh, a good system to be able to to match the addresses and to be able to uh, to do that at scale. Uh, and we were really struggling, and we, we would, we'd invested into this this fantastic data um, that was taking postal office data, local authority data, uh, and and bringing that into a single product. But the the system that we were using to be able to to search that data was was pretty cumbersome. It was an in-house application that we had to host. Getting data updates was really challenging. So, for example, if you're an insurer, you need to have really up to date information. If a, if a property's just been built. If you want to price it at address level, you need to know where that address is straight away and be confident that it's in, right, in the right place. And that was a real challenge for, for, for us as a company. I was looking at different solutions out there. I thought there was a there was definitely space for a new one. So I decided to quit my job and essentially build what has now become address cloud. So the idea was to really have a, a kind of Google-like experience. So like really simple to use, nice interface, really easy to be able to integrate with. Fully cloud hosted, fully managed, and in the cloud, and that's where Address Cloud was born. So basically, yeah, the the name does what it says on the tin. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly does make sense in terms of in terms of geocoding. Isn't that problem being solved? I mean, there, there's lots of different geocoders out there. How are, are you guys different? Like, I think I think we understand now how geocoding relates to and is a really important part of risk assessment in terms of insurance but that bit that you guys are doing so you're doing your geocoding and then you're enriching the data is that correct and then somehow the insurance company is getting a hold of that and giving quotes based on on your data can can you maybe fill in the gaps a little bit there for me
0: yeah absolutely so as i say we started very much as a pure play geocoding solution so that's initially that's all we were doing and again it's one of those things that people think it's a solved problem until they they come up against it there are some good geocoding solutions out there that are good general purpose geocoding solutions that will do people like, you know, Google and Bing are doing and here, for example, are doing a fantastic job on a global scale. But when you get into within a country, you really need to have specialist knowledge of the kind of colloquialisms and and the way uh, people uh, refer to addresses, which is very much a country by country kind of specific problem. Um, So that's where we thought we could differentiate by having something that was really, really kind of trained in on the UK and Ireland, um, and being able to do that job Using government data and being able to do that, basically to something where uh, where an enterprise would be able to use that and get that extra degree of accuracy. But what we what we found really is once we'd, we'd kind of done that, I'd always, I wouldn't say it's a solved problem, I and mean, it's it's always a challenge. Um, but there's always edge cases and bizarre things that you know that would fall into the camp of you can't make it up. But once we'd kind of those those started to die down, people was then our customers were then saying, well, this is great. You can tell us where this address is, and we're really confident in your in your results what else can you tell us about that address? Uh, and so that's really been our focus, I would say, over the last two, three years around bringing in as many high quality data sets as we can and, and really linking those all back to the address and, and having that available as, a, as an API and a service that's very, very quick, very scalable and is reliable. You know, this thing needs to be,
1: so that, I think that's really interesting what you said about geocoding because I have largely seen this as as a solved problem. As you know, we have the solution. We have many different solutions. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about it. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is is such a critical part of of, of geospatial. You know, the the attachment. You know, where do you live? And if we can't you know, take our human understanding of addresses and our human way of geocoding that and translate that into something that's spatially enabled, that the machines can understand, we, we can't connect all these different data sources. So it's a really important thing. And the fact that it's not, you know, 100% solved, I, I think that's really interesting that we, that, that we can't yet, you know, with 100% certainty say we can solve this problem every, every, every single time.
0: Yeah. And I I think as part of that as well, I mean, if you think about us as, uh, and I'm I'm putting myself in in the GIS person camp there, which I don't, you know, I still feel like a bit of an imposter, even after all these years. But, you know, there's one thing around geocoding as to finding yourself on the map and kind of getting your bearings and get yourself hopefully in the right location. But when you take the map away and when you're working with with something like this, where everything's happening in the back ends, and is also informing ultimately whether or not people are going to get insurance and what they're going to pay for it. You need to be really, really confident in that location. And I think that's where the really challenge uh, challenge lies, uh, is reducing those false positives and making sure that you're returning an accurate result.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially, like, this is not a visual thing. There's no people looking at it. This is is a point and polygon lookup. Okay, I have a house. It's situated here or a property here. I want to insure it. And then you go to your system and say, what are the risks in, in this uh, immediate area, I'm assuming, or the surrounding areas. What is the risk profile here? Um, so, so while we're talking about risk profiles. I'm assuming sometimes there must be some edge cases where you can't locate a property or you have some troubles around it anyway. Can you then look at the risk profile of of adjoining properties perhaps? Properties that are close by and then assume a certain amount of risk based on that? Or, or and do you look out in the future do you make forecasting as well or is it just a here and now risk assessment that that your software delivers?
0: That's a great question. So so what we what we do is we we model the hierarchy of a, of a property so as part of both in our geocoder and also in our intelligence service we We model a hierarchy and recognize that we can't always get to address level, particularly when there's not a user present. Um, So often our customers will will take, let's say, a big portfolio of addresses from a broker. Um, Brokers, I think UK brokers specifically, seem to have a real issue um, with quality, with address quality. I mean, some are better than others, but we get some really, really bizarre addresses that have got typos, things all over the place. And we do our best to get them to address level, but we can't always get there. Um, so we what we do is we offer with the customer the option to drill back. So that would normally be we wouldn't normally go to an adjoining property, but what we would normally do is say, well, if it's an apartment um, and we're we're going here, when we say address, we're we're going kind of beyond building. So we'll give different scores. For example, within a, a block of uh, within an apartment block, we'll know if the property is on the first or ground floor or on the top floor. And so, from, for example, from a flood insurance perspective, that would be a different different risk profile. Um, you might might not want to insure a ground floor property for flood, but you might be quite happy to do that for the a property that's on the uh, above ground on the second floor above. So where we can't, uh, but where we can't get to address point level, we can drill back to building level or potentially to postal code level. But the key things really is being confident and flagging up that level of accuracy to the insurer. And obviously, depending then upon the risk, I mean, if it's a, if it was a, if it was a I don't know a penthouse apartment in a really, really salubrious part of London that was worth an awful lot of money. They, uh, but we couldn't get them to address level. They could only get them to postcode level. They might want to then trigger a referral process to go and check that on a map. Um, or for a lower value property, they might just be okay. That's fine. We'll go ahead. We've got a postcode level risk, and we'll go ahead and write that anyway. Um, so, so, so that approach does very, very much differently depending on the on the insurer and on their risk appetite.
1: I think there was really a, a really interesting observation that, of course, the risk profile is going to change if we think about flooding depending where the, the the property is located if it's on the third floor or the fourth floor and I often fall into that trap of still thinking in 2d but obviously we live in a three-dimensional world so I think that was a really important point there that that you made in the pre-interview you talked about something called accumulations and I found this fascinating would you mind describing that for for the listeners
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, really, again, probably rewinding back to why people or why insurers started investing in in geography. I mean, ultimately, an insurer's biggest cost or most insurers' biggest cost would be their reinsurance. So, uh, typically, insurers and in the past they've kind of almost been writing blind. So, if you imagine, um, you get these big insurance groups where they might own many different brands and different kind of subsidiaries, often all writing and sometimes competing with one another. They would often not know uh, historically where, if, if they were all insuring in the same building. Uh, I mean, the, the classic case, um, for, you know, very tragic but classic case for this was, uh, was the World Trade Center. So, when the 9 11 event happened, some of our, uh, our, our customers, the customer I was working with, uh, with at the time, they owned many subsidiaries in, uh, who were all insuring in both the Twin Towers and the surrounding retail. And it almost ended up being a catastroph- catastrophic event for for the insurer, and it almost brought the insurer down just because they were they were essentially writing in one place. And that's what we would call accumulation management. So it's basically managing, understanding where you're insuring, and do you have t- too much in one space? Is it is it too much that could potentially introduce a introduce a, a risk to, to the company? Um, so accumulation management is really about the process of of having good quality data, cleansing that data. Uh, plotting it on a map and then looking to see where where your hotspots are, where do you have too much risk, and, and how you can potentially mitigate that risk.
1: Thanks for taking the time to, to share that with the listeners. I, I really appreciate it. I, I would like to sort of dive into these these risk profiles a little bit more and try and understand what it is that that people are getting out of the system. Do, do they get a separate risk profile for things like flooding, fire, crime, or, or these other sort of hazards out there in the world? Or is it just an overall sort of weighted risk profile? What, what does that look like?
0: Yeah, so we've, again, we've, there, there are a couple of other companies who work in our space and different people kind of take this in a, in a different way. Um, what we tend to do is we give a full breakdown. So if you, if you go in for any given particular address, we may have anywhere up to sort of 100, 200 different attributes uh, and we'll break that down by the different kinds of risk as opposed to coming up with a sort of a black box magic score you know, write it or don't write it. So, so what we what we, we, we typically deliver back is a is a very detailed assessment. We try and avoid generally giving an opinion. It's more okay. Here are a bunch of things that you need to take into account, and then the insurer would then plug that into their own kind of algorithm to then work out a price for the for the customer.
1: This was probably a little bit unfair of me, but at some stage there, I, I asked two questions, and we, we didn't get okay. an we, we didn't get an answer for the second one. So I'm, I'm going to try again, but my, my okay. apologies for asking too. Um, so, so the question was. Is this a here and now risk assessment or, oh, okay. or, or do you look out into the future? Is there some kind of modelling that you do and say, "Will we assume that this risk will change in such and such a way over the next five or six years? You know, I, I think when I think of this, I'm thinking in terms of urban development, for example. So we know a long way out in the future what's going to happen in a general area. We have plans yeah. and that could change the flooding profile, for example. Do, do you do things like that or is it here and now? Today, the risk level is this. And, and and then that's it
0: yeah so i mean for insurers insurers typically think in 12 month cycles most insurance policies are normally valid for 12 months and then in 12 months time we renew and and then we re-evaluate so yeah ours is very much at the moment focused on here and now but it is a great question you know we've got um what we're seeing is some of our data providers and partners um, and we ourselves are being asked now around um, taking into account things like climate change uh, and as other industries start to adopt this service, so we we do predominantly insurance, but not exclusively. But think, for example, things like lenders. So a a, uh, a mortgage provider or a, a you know home loans provider who's taking they're essentially taking a thirty year, twenty five or thirty year gamble on a on a, on a property, and they're wanting to, to really take into account that kind of information. So climate change data is the risk profile of this property that I'm essentially loaning the money for that for my for my customer to buy is that going to be the same in 10 20 30 years time um, so it's not something that we do much of at the moment but definitely something we're being asked about
1: I'd like to sort of move off now and sort of talk about the, the future because I'd be really interested to know or hear your thoughts on what, what what this kind of risk assessment might look like in in the future is there any sort of trends you can see happening is there any sort of sort of movements in any one particular di- direction you can see in the industry at the moment
0: i think we, we see a few a few things happening and not necessarily completely in our space but there's, there's a few kind of general trends that i think will, have, will affect us as a business and also the industry so i think in that as i mentioned kind of in the past you know gis was very much a back office function um, it has moved now to, um, and, and often is is present in the kind of the the journey for uh, for many insurers. But it's still, I still don't think it's reached uh, full adoption, full scale. So I think there's going to be more and more customers, more insurers who are going to be doing this as part of a part of their journey. And I think really GIS is is going to be moving, and I'm even seeing that structurally. So some of our customers, we would often work with with GIS. Um, so a lot of insurers have got their own in-house GIS departments. And a lot of that now is becoming kind of merged and, and really just seen as more a more specialist branch of uh, of uh, business intelligence, as opposed to uh, a very kind of specific function. So I think it's becoming, I think GEO is becoming really like front and center of, and the insurers are recognizing the value of it. And then I think as well, in terms of the, I guess in terms of more on the, on the IT side, we've seen a, I mean, I've, I've worked in the past for a big consultancy where we'd go in and, and there'd often be these big three, four-year engagements, big projects to put in these huge, great big systems. And that's kind of going away now. So a lot of insurers tend to be going out and and, and purchasing in specialist services, third-party APIs. And they recognize, while it's very, very important, it's a very specialist area. So we, we kind of see that happening more and more often. I mean, insurance generally is still quite a manual process, particularly large commercial corporate insurance. So we work with some customers who trade through the Lloyds market, and if you imagine the old kind of stock exchange, the classic stock exchanges back in the 80s, people waving around bits of paper. I mean, that's not quite the state. That's not quite the same in Lloyd's, but it is still very much paper driven. Yeah? You, you'll you go into the City of London, you'll see brokers walking around still with these great big portfolios and lots and lots of paper. Uh, and we really see um, that, uh, I think, over the next 10, 20 years, that's going to go away. And we're going to get to a state where, a bit like the stock exchanges were in the 80s and 90s, they all became automated and, and everything went electronic. I think the same is going to be happening for the for the uh, for the insurance industry as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it was really interesting to hear you talk about the, the role of, of GIS geospatial um, professionals in the industry and how they're moving slowly but surely from the, from the back office up to where the decisions are being made and sort of being included in there and even being viewed as part of the um, uh, business and intelligence. Uh, I think that's that's something we we are seeing across other industries as well. The more of a recognition that hey, this is maybe not as special as we used to think it was, but it's definitely data and it's a really important part of these models and it's going to be a part of making more sort of granular, precise decisions. And I think in terms of insurance, I think probably what we're talking about here is obviously making better decisions. We hear that term everywhere, but we're also talking about spreading the risk. So if we stay on that sort of theme of spreading the risk, and I was talking a little bit or asked a few questions around modeling before. Do you think that's what we're going to see? We we talked briefly before about making these sort of shorter life cycles of an insurance plan or insurance contract. Do you think we're going to see that increase and become ever smaller and smaller until we get to a stage where perhaps we're assessing risk and in in real
0: time? Yeah, I think so, I think there's definitely going to be more and more real time information coming in. I mean, I think the nature of what we do, we tend to be working with property insurance that tends to not be necessarily so important. But if you take into account other classes of risk, um, so for things like uh, marine risk, you know, tracking ships, there's there's heaps of interesting use cases where actually having that real time element and that real time data becomes really really important. We kind of talked about use cases, just kind of playing in in terms of the real time element. One use case that our software typically gets used for, and something that we are we are kind of increasingly working on and being asked for, is around post event analysis. So understanding that. Where a big event has, has happened, understanding for an insurance company a couple of things they need to know pretty much straight away is what's their what's their potential loss or what's their potential exposure to that event and that could be a big flood event, a big fire could be a a terrorism event they'll need to know very very quickly what their exposure is and they would often use GIS to be able to do that and then also um, some of the insurers actually actually had a uh, a department where if there's been a big flood risk or a big event like that, they would actually send out a mobile claims unit to go out there and help the customers or potentially make outbound calls to the customers, say, are you okay? How are you affected? Is there anything we can do to help? And again, having that kind of real-time information and having that feed and being able to intersect those two, I think is really, really important. In a previous
1: episode, I, I talked to the CEO and founder of a company called WatchKeeper. and they Yeah, were all- I heard that one. So yeah. <laughs>
0: that was a great episode. Yeah, really good.
1: Yeah, and what I thought was really fascinating was, okay, so not only are they assessing risk, it was in a different vertical, but assessing risk in real time and making decisions based on that. But the idea that it could then become a model and they could, you know, go back in time and watch the risk accumulate and these factors sort of play in uh, to the end result over three four or five days kind of thing and I couldn't help but think when you were talking about risk and, and where this this insurance or risk assessment in general is going in this platform that you've built if that's not what you're building as well if you couldn't sort of wind back in time or sort of fast forward in time as well at some stage and be able to see the risk perhaps not on such a granular level for each house but for postcodes or for larger geographic areas and see how it changes over time and sort of see what factors are really affecting that that level of risk
0: yeah, I think that's great. As I say, we 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 haven't seen much much demand from customers around having that sort of temporal view, um, but you could certainly you know you could envisage a, a solution or something where that was playing out, and that would be really you know super interesting. Uh, and we do start archiving. Well, we have got an archive of kind of what we call I guess post event boundaries and footprints, and and over time it would be super interesting to to have a look and uh, and see how those have evolved and if there are any patterns. Um, and again, I think probably that and playing back onto your, your previous thing about geo and, and how kind of geo becoming more and more a part of and re- recognized and valued as part of the um uh, you know as part of the core business function um obviously we've seen the last couple of years everyone now probably some geo people if they're smarter are, are reimagining themselves as data scientists but then you'd also get data science people coming in who haven't got a geo background who are the we found are then discovering geo uh, and i think as all that converges um and having those two kind of quite different disciplines and probably different you know different backgrounds maybe different academic backgrounds different ways of viewing a problem i think we might start seeing those kind of things happening more and more
1: mark on behalf of the listeners i really want to thank you for coming along and sharing your insights sharing your knowledge and telling us a little bit about the the risk assessment industry the insurance industry i've really enjoyed the conversation if people want to reach out to you what, what's the best way for them to do that
0: yeah, sure. No problem at all. And thanks ever so much again for the invitation. Um, so you can contact us um, on our website, addresscloud.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, um, Mark Varley, that's uh, V-A-R-L-E-Y. We are on Twitter. We don't tweet a lot, but at um, Address Cloud, you can find us on Twitter as well. Thanks,
1: Mark. I, I really appreciate it.
0: No, no problem at all. You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to our sponsor, Hive Mapper. That's hive as in beehive, Mapper. This is the company and this is the platform that takes airborne videos and turns them into a single living 3D map. And there's a whole bunch of amazing geospatial analytics baked into their system that you can use It makes it really easy and user-friendly to get around. So if you're doing something with drones, if you're doing something with aerial mapping, if you're taking video data, collecting it from airborne platforms, I would highly recommend that you check out HiveMapper. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. My name is Daniel, and I want to say a big thanks to everyone that's tuned in again this week. It's, it's a real pleasure making these episodes for you, and I really hope you're enjoying them. If you have any feedback whatsoever, you are more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You can find me at Mapscaping on Twitter, Facebook, and map underscore view on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. I just have one small favor to ask before I say goodbye. And that is if you have a friend or know someone who you think might enjoy this, this podcast, please share it with them. I would really appreciate it. Okay, that's it for me. Thanks again. We'll talk again next week. Bye.